Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now on the virus, a definitive conversation on COVID with Deborah Fuller of the University of Washington School of Medicine and Microbiology professor. I can't say enough about the esteem of their uh, program. Dr. Fuller, I want to go to the idea that we were all afraid of measles and maybe ex-anti-vaxxers were less afraid of measles now. And there's different variants of measles, D4, B2, whatever those numbers are. Are the variants of this virus to be treated like the variants of other things we've contained or are the variants here different? The variants here could be could be quite different, and that's just because we have uh, increasing evidence that some of these new SARS-CoV-2 variants are not only gaining an ability to transmit more efficiently, but developing mutations that could potentially evade uh, antibody immune responses. And that uh, would potentially suggest that our current vaccines, uh, it, might, uh, it might impact our, the efficacy of our current vaccines. Now, our vaccines are very high efficacy, much higher than 90%. So we're not talking about complete uh, loss of protection by the vaccines. We're talking about a bit of a decline that, say, maybe from 95% to to 85 percent. That's still a very, very effective vaccine, but it's something that uh, as vaccinologists we keep an eye on because it's to a certain threshold. We may get to a point where we have to update those vaccines. Well, Dr. Fuller, some people would put this as a race, basically a race to get enough people vaccinated before the virus mutates enough to set you back further and cause an increased circulation of the virus. How are we doing in that race? Yeah, it, it truly is a race between viral evolution and, and uh, vaccination rate. Uh, the, the goal is to reach herd immunity. We are currently estimating about 70 to 80 percent of the population uh, immune to be able to shut down this pandemic. But herd immunity depends on two things. And one is how transmissible is the virus and how efficacious is your vaccine. So as the virus mutates, and we talked about that, that it can mutate to increase transmission and potentially reduce uh, vaccine efficacy, that raises the bar in terms of how many people we have to vaccinate. So it's like this, this cycle that uh, pushes our goalposts further down the line. So it truly is a race. And Dr. Fuller, perhaps this is sort of an underappreciated aspect of this pandemic, people expecting recovery, and yet not necessarily understanding how much this new strain of virus that is more transmissible, possibly, potentially, according to some reports, more virulent, uh, how much that has accelerated the spread of the pandemic. How much has that set us back in terms of a need to vaccinate more people? Otherwise, we're going to be dealing with lockdowns and other types of uh, social distancing measures instead. Yeah, I, th I think we started here hearing early on when we started talking about herd immunity, we were thinking 60, 65 percent. And now what we're hearing is 70, 80 percent. And that could even go go higher. And of course, the, that's a huge difference in terms of uh, the numbers of people that will need to receive the vaccine to get to that point. And the more people you have to vaccinate, uh, the longer it's going to take to get there. Should we assume we will see a traditional vaccine? Merck with some challenges today, all the way J&J, other experts like you, Dr. Fuller, talking about the efficacy of a more traditional vaccine. Do we need that? 
in, in terms of more traditional vaccines, like uh, like you mean, like the uh, kinds that we had before the RNA vaccines, yes, is that what you're yes, referring to? Yes. Yeah. So, so the the J and J one that's coming out, I would not categorize that as traditional. That's actually kind of new as well. It's just using a different way to deliver genetic material into our cells so that we can produce the vaccine. So it's actually in some respects quite similar okay. uh, to the RNA vaccines. And, and the advantage of both of these types of vaccines is that should the virus undergo a, a, an evolution where it is starting to reduce their efficacy, they are what we call plug and play vaccines. They're very, very quick to update. You just have to swap out the genetic material and away you go to producing them. In the past, our traditional vaccines would take somewhere between eight to nine months to update. These ones, they're going to be weeks uh, maybe a month to start to get back out again. So this is that's good news for us that these are the types of vaccines that can that can chase that viral evolution much quicker. Doctor, just to wrap things up, could we just get your assessment of the administration's goal to vaccinate one million Americans per day for a hundred days? We're already around those levels and have been now for about a week or so. I wonder, from your perspective, Doctor, whether the goal itself is just not bold enough or whether there will be supply issues down the road that we need to address at the moment that actually make that one million rate quite optimistic. Right. Well, it, it sounds impressive, but I, but it may not be enough. I think it's a good start uh, uh, to, to get to. But if we want to get to a goal where we keep talking about wanting to sort of be mass free by Labor Day or something, uh, we're probably going to need to start there and then quickly accelerate, maybe double or even triple that rate uh, to get to there. But I think once the mechanisms are in place to to achieve that consistently, uh, a million doses a day, then that uh, that's the kind of thing they could leverage to con- continue to, to uh, increase the rate and double and even triple that. Doctor, just quickly, do you have a placeholder on the calendar? Is there a marker out there? for you that you're thinking about when things start to get pared back, restrictions start to be removed again? Well, I always keep telling people that I'd love to have a mask-free day by Labor Day. But, uh, you know, and, and that goes from the perspective of, you know, I run the lab of 20 people. Many of them are young parents who yeah. are eager to see those kids go back to school in the fall and uh, get things back to normal. Doctor, appreciate your time. Come back soon. Dr. Deborah Fuller there right. of the University of Washington School of Medicine. Television. As John mentioned, China, as we heard President Xi at the Davos agenda, we now speak to truly an authority on this. George Magnus is at Oxford University's China Center, and we're thrilled he could join us after his wonderful, hugely, hugely readable uh, effort, Red Flags. George Magnus, thrilled to have you on this day where the leader of China speaks. What did he not say? He's very good at saying... The, the appropriate things. What did he not speak of? Well, uh, I only heard uh, kind of brief snippets of, uh, of his address. Um, I mean, what he, what he didn't say, actually, of course, are the things that you would never expect him to say, which, of course, are, uh, you know, the nuances about China's economic recovery. Um, I mean, he, he does talk about, you know, we mustn't have a Cold War mentality, which he didn't say he was partially responsible for injecting into the global system. Uh, he did say that decoupling leads to division, which is obviously a pointed remark of the United States, not saying that actually China has been doing selective decoupling for years. Um, and he did say that openness and inclusiveness are really important, which is something that he didn't say China doesn't really practice. So 
um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of the things that he said that are the opposite of actually what actually takes place in, in, country, in the country. And George, this is the big question, isn't it? What can the incoming administration do to actually change the behaviour of China? Getting them to say the right things on the international stage at the World Economic Forum, that's one thing. Getting them to act differently is another. Do you expect a change in approach from the new administration in the United States? I expect a change of tone, uh, you know, but not really a change of substance, um, Jonathan. I think the, uh, you know, the, and we've seen enough and heard enough already, even though it's only like a week old, uh, not even the administration of the appointees um, who are in key positions. Um, and I, I don't really hear or, do or sense any uh, marked change of direction. So uh, I think it would be um, unusual, given what we know about the individuals concerned, if there wasn't a change of tone. And certainly strengthening alliances, whether that's with uh, Europe or with the Quad, so Australia, uh, Japan and India, um, uh, much stronger uh, overtures towards Indo-Pacific countries. I mean, these kinds of things, I think, will be forthcoming. And I think that is something which the Chinese actually were probably uh, fearful of and why they probably didn't want him elected. But um, but I think that's that's where I think sort of the, the rubber is going to meet the road, proverbially, um, is sort of a more united kind of front amongst countries to confront China on, on very, very important issues, but not necessarily on tariffs, which were never really uh, going to be going to change anything. Meanwhile, financial markets have been voting between the U.S. and China and opting for China. There was data out of the U.N. saying that China overtook the United States for the first time as the world's top destination for new foreign direct investments uh, this past year. And this has been ongoing with a huge shift of financial firms trying to expand in China despite some of these ongoing tensions between the U.S. Uh, and China. Do you think that this money is well-founded in terms of its bet on the Chinese economy going forward based on on its preeminence in how it has recovered from the pandemic versus, say, the U.S. and Europe? Well, Lisa, you know, it's like so many things. It's, there's so much nuance involved. I mean, I'm not saying that every company that puts money to work in China is, you know, is kind of throwing it down the drain. But actually, we also have to recognize, you know, there's a lot of self-serving money that's going into China and justifying it on the basis uh, of being there for that reason. But I think that, uh, you know, the... the um, uh, the, the essence of, of the kind of the, the, the UN report or the UNCTAD report you referred to, I mean, it's not a, you know, I mean, the world is basically kind of imploded because of the pandemic. Foreign direct investment ground to a halt. China managed to, to its credit, to uh, with draconian measures to suppress uh, COVID uh, and uh, allow its economy to come back, um, you know, reasonably well during the last part of uh, 2020, um, and uh, and the FDI flows going into China went up by four percent. We're not talking about a huge kind of amount, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I do think credit where credit's due. I mean, they they've certainly managed to achieve and accomplish something with their economy, which the rest of us obviously are looking at slightly green and tinged with envy. But you know, in the fullness of time, one imagines when we get on top of our own pandemic problems. I think they, uh, the catch-up will become quite apparent. George, great to catch up, sir. Please come back soon. So much to talk Thank about. You. Author of Red Flags, George Magnus, Oxford University, China, Centre Research Associate. On this day, after all of the inauguration, begin our political coverage forward for President Biden 
and for our legislative branch. Brian Stile joins us now, first out of the block, with the fascinating first district of Wisconsin. This is Les Aspen's old district, and then on to Paul Ryan, who Congressman Stile worked for, and he now holds court. From Janesville in the very far west of the district, over to the lake and, of course, over to Kenosha as well. Brian, it is such an interesting district and really is the polarity of America from Janesville to Kenosha. How are you going to straddle that polarity forward? Southeast Wisconsin is a great place to live and work. It's about hardworking families getting the job done. What we need to do is actually address the policies that are impacting people in Wisconsin or across the country. we got to work to get people back to work, to keep America healthy, to defeat COVID, and to keep our communities and our country safe. If we're focused in on the policies that matter to workers and families in Southeast Wisconsin, those are the values that matter to everyone across the United States. We're gonna be able to come together to move the ball forward on behalf of the American people. Ron Klain, working for President Biden, made clear he needs bipartisan to succeed. How can you break bread with President Biden? How can you break bread with Speaker Pelosi? I think there's areas where we can come together. We can come together to ultimately defeat this virus, making sure that we have the resources on the front lines for our nurses and our doctors, vaccine development and vaccine rollout. We can come together, I think, on infrastructure. But at the same time, that means Congress has to get to work, where we've seen on day one Joe Biden making pretty extreme executive decisions that I think are against the interests of the American people. We're going to have to push back against that, but I think we can come together to work on some of the most pressing issues, in particular, getting workers back to work. Can you get behind a $1.9 trillion package for COVID relief? What we've seen is a lot of money going in and providing liquidity into the market. What we need to do now is begin to target that relief to those individuals who've been impacted through no fault of their own. These broad brushstrokes of relief, I think have a risk of, of overheating and putting us further into debt, and in particular, not being good stewards of taxpayer dollars. I'd like to see us target that relief to those people who've been negatively impacted. Think about people working right. maybe in the service industry, your, your cooks or your, your frontline folks. That's where we need to target the relief rather than these broad brushstrokes, which are just not a good use of taxpayer dollars in some instances. So if that's where the money goes, would you be behind the, the $1.9 trillion? I mean, if you look at the liquidity in the markets that was provided by the central bank, this COVID relief package would do something else. I think what we would be seeing is some of this is, is not good use of taxpayer dollars in the initial proposal. We're going to have to see what's actually written on paper. Some of these top line numbers uh, are being floated around on Capitol Hill. What I'd like to see is us narrowly tailor this to those people that have been impacted rather than these big, broad brushstrokes where they're going to try to implement all sorts of policy objectives unrelated to COVID or unrelated to getting folks back to work. Okay, I-94, moving north, up the lake. It's part of your headache as well. If we have stimulus in Congressman, we're going to have to have a bridge to nowhere infrastructure project. How do you envision infrastructure as a conservative guy. One easy opportunity there is let's push forward with private sector infrastructure investment. This is where I was so frustrated by Joe Biden's decision on day one to kill the Keystone Pipeline. That was billions of dollars of private sector infrastructure investment, thousands of jobs, hundreds of those jobs from southeast Wisconsin. Those are the types of jobs that we should be able to rally around, private infrastructure 
investment would be critical. And I was disappointed to see Joe Biden kill the Keystone Pipeline on day one of his administration. Okay, fine. But where looking forward is the common ground on infrastructure? I have aged watching nothing, essentially nothing get done in Washington. How do Republicans provide bipartisan leadership to get to a second stimulus bill that builds bridges, fixes airports, etc.? I think the big conversation is what is the pay for? How are we actually going to come together? The side of the ledger of we need to build infrastructure, I think that is a broad Fair. bipartisan analysis. I think <clears throat> the conversation, the adult conversation in the room is going to be how are we going to pay for this? Is it a look towards raising everyone's taxes? Or are we going to find areas where we can provide efficiency and cut spending elsewhere? Can we use user fees? That's the adult conversation we have to have in the room. I think there is consensus on the side of the ledger of we need to invest in infrastructure. I'd like to see a conversation about how we can be thoughtful, productive stewards of taxpayer dollars, but also moving forward with that infrastructure investment. Uh, Congressman, I've got to ask, and I know you're crushed. We were frankly looking for your entourage to cancel you today. The Green Bay Packers kicked a field goal? Congressman, help me here. Paul Ryan never would have let that happen. Bad, bad decision. you you got to go for the touchdown when you have one of the best red zone offenses in the league with two minutes left. That's a decision that's going to haunt us until next season for sure. I mean, this is the Democrats' fault, isn't it? <laughs> it's, we got somebody to blame for that. That's a, okay. bad, that's a bad decision. Francine, that was football talk. Francine, save us. I know. I know, Congressman, I, I know you condemned the, the mob that, uh, you know, insurged on Capitol Hill on January 6th, but you also voted against impeaching Donald Trump. Does Donald Trump still have a place in the Republican Party? I think we need to hold the criminals that came into the Capitol accountable. We always need to hold people accountable for their actions. I'm a big tent Republican. I think there's plenty of room for lots of folks about how we're going to move the ball forward. I don't think impeaching the president is productive. I voted against it. I think the Senate should pass it aside and get on with the work of the American people. The American people want to get folks back to work. They want to get America healthy. We need to keep our communities safe. Let's put partisan politics aside and get on with the work of the American people. Right, but so where do you see Donald Trump fitting in the Republican Party? I, I think he's a, a terrific voice about cutting taxes, about lowering the regulatory burdens. I think he should be a continuing voice to advance us on good, solid, conservative policies going forward. The bigger the tent, we need more people on the Republican side, more people in the conservative movement to move our country forward, not less. Oh, you've got some demographic challenges there. Uh, we'll come back to you, Congressman, next time Green Bay explains what the hell happened there. That was absolutely extraordinary. He is from the first district of Wisconsin, as far away from Green Bay as you can get this morning, Congressman Style. Thank you uh, so much. Right now, as we spoke to Mr. Style of Wisconsin an hour ago, we speak with Mr. Evans of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. His district is important. It is hugely Democratic uh, in guidance, and he is the leader of the 3rd District of Pennsylvania. We're thrilled that Congressman Evans could join us uh, this morning. Dwight Evans, you have a new Congress. You're in charge. You've got a president. You've got your house again. And lo and behold, 50-50, Vice President Harris will uh, give that important in the, vote in the Senate. What does your team need to do to affect policy? I think first to say good morning to you. And, and I think that uh, what we need to do 
is attempt to bring people together within the Congress. I think that with President Biden and Vice President Harris, the attempt to bring people together and first crush the virus. We must crush the virus. There's a direct connection between crushing the virus and the economy uh, coming back. You need to do both of those combinations. And I believe that President Biden and Vice President Harris will demonstrate that type of leadership. So they will first start off with the vaccine distribution. And in the initiative that the president uh, has put forward is the initiative for the distribution of the uh, vaccine, which I think is very essential uh, in terms of dealing with problems. The second part of it is uh, dealing with the economy. And dealing with the economy in terms of small businesses, uh, investing in infrastructure, like schools reopening, those type of things. And, and the president-elect, um, or the president, as he stated, is basically attempting mm-hmm. to deal with both sides, uh, the Democrats right. and the Republicans. And Con- I think that we're in a good position as a result of that. Congressman, Shirley Chisholm got the Black Caucus going. Charles Rangel renamed it in the 70s, I believe it was. And you know, you now provide important leadership there. You are joined by Reverend Warnock of Georgia, and you're also joined by a vice president of the United States with an historic heritage. How will the new Black Caucus look going forward? Well, I think that the new Black Caucus uh, will look where it wants to get something done which is very essential. We know that either party cannot do it by themselves, and that's the reality. So the Black Caucus, as I said, will attempt to form an alliance to attack the virus and then figure out how you deal with small businesses. That's very important in terms of rebuilding, building back this economy uh, back. Uh, That's a reality that we face. I believe that the president uh, is given the opportunity can do those, those things. You're not talking about somebody who is new at this. Uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris have the necessary skill set. When you look at yeah. historically a uh, president's uh, experience, he has shown years of experience in the Senate, uh, Vice President of the United States. He has what I believe is necessary. You're talking about 60 members in the Congressional Black Caucus. You're talking about six members on the Ways and Means Committee. So I think when you look at it, you basically have people who have the ability to bring it together if given the opportunity to uh, to implement uh, the vision and the agenda that he has. Representative, there's a question about impeachment at this point and the wisdom behind going forward with the trial, given the immediacy of both the vaccination rollout as well as the aid needed to get to people. Do you think that it is a mistake to move ahead so quickly with impeaching the former President Trump? Uh, I believe we can do more than one thing. I believe it's a question of accountability. The House has voted for impeachment and that is now passed over to the Senate. I believe that we can conduct both. We can implement the agenda regarding the virus and the economy, and we also can deal with impeachment. It is a question of accountability. You can't ignore, you know, it's not like the Constitution uh, has written somewhere in there where some document where it states that you can avoid the aspect of accountability. No one is above the question of accountability. I believe that that process will be conducted in a very fair, open way, and we should move forward.
Congressman, thanks for being with us this morning. And we appreciate your patience as we had some technical problems just moments ago. Please come back soon. Democratic Congressman there, Dwight Evans of Pennsylvania. Dick Cast now with Seabreeze. And we'll do the equity markets here. I know Doug's loaded the boat on GameStop, so we'll see how <laughs> that's going. He's going to buy the rest of the state of Florida here uh, when he clears that trade. But we have to start with Henry Aaron. Doug Cass, when I heard that Henry Aaron died, I just waited for Tom Boswell of the Baltimore Sun and the Washington Post to publish one of our great writers. And Tom Boswell absolutely nailed our Ute. And I, I, Doug, I think this needs to be said. The media for baseball in our childhood was East Coast, big city, American League. The National League barely existed, particularly when the two teams from New York abandoned uh, New York. And Doug Cass, for me in my childhood, Henry Aaron was a box score, and he was on with Dizzy Dean on Game of the Week every once in a while. And that's all we knew about the guy. Yeah, I think that the from my uh, vantage point, um, Tom, the 755 home runs were impressive. But to me, it was the manner and the grace of hammering Hank when he confronted the force of um, racist vitriol in his pursuit of Babe Ruth's home run record. I think that many forget how vicious the attacks were on Aaron. Yeah. It was really an ugly moment for America, for baseball, and for American sports. It, it was, Doug, and, and let's go to that because I, you know, I'm thinking about Ed, Edward Matthews, as my father called him, and and all that. <laughs> go into the the later part of his career; he's already iconic, and then in the pursuit of that iconic record, he just did it day after day, and there was a grind to it that everybody he, he found was, was magisterial. He was, to, he, he was to hitting Tom that Sandy was to pitching. Um, they started their Major League Baseball careers only one year apart. They're only one year difference in age. I don't know if you knew that. But even my cousin Sandy couldn't put Aaron away. I think that Aaron was one of only five players to hit over 300 during his career against Sandy. Yeah. But what was really impressive was his slash line against Sandy. For those that don't know baseball like we do, that's batting average, on-base percentage, and slugging average. And it was he his batting average against Sandy was three sixty two. His on base percentage was four thirty, and I believe his slugging ad, ad, uh, average was close to six fifty. Doug, before we get to the markets, one more from me on, on Henry Aaron. What I I mean he was just before my time, but you know what looking at some of the statistics, there's so many that jump out at you, but one of the ones that really jumps out at me in this day and age is he played almost every game every year whether it was 154 games or 162 games no day offs you know a, a day game after a night game you only play 10 games in a row he played every single day right and play and the great pitchers completed almost every game the that's right game was much different than that the one um paul one the one stat that comes out to me was that his starting salary in um <laughs> 1955 was six thousand dollars but his ending salary was only $240,000. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just an extraordinary different uh, time and place. All right, Doug, we're, we're starting here into earnings season here. Give us a – how important is this earnings season for you as it relates to the actual numbers that get printed versus maybe some of the guidance we hear from some sure. of these executives? I think the earnings season is, um, is somewhat irrelevant because it's a rearview mirror. 
And I also also think, um, Paul, it's it's taking a back burner, and on the front burner is is this uh, pandemic era central banking, which is creating bubbles everywhere. Uh, if the market was a song, it would be the Tin Pally, the Tin Pan Alley hit. I'm forever blowing bubbles. Um, <laughs> and for John Farrow, Tom, I would mention to him that the song is currently the anthem of the English Premier League club West Ham. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I think we're in the final phase of speculation. Speculation is running amok upon us. It's probably spelling doom for the 11-year bull market. Most should prepare. Most should not short, but most should prepare for this by reducing risk profile. Um, what's really concerning to me is that speculative behavior has become normalized. Uh, many are really enjoying small cap SPACs, large cap Tesla Speculation is just growing ever more irrational. It's almost like a Janis Joplin song, get it while you can. Um, but history rhymes, and this is typically the last gasp of a bull market. And I think that the youth, the young investors like Willie Sutton, are attracted to these uh, worthless, sometimes worthless, shiny objects of speculation. Because to quote Sutton, when asked why he robs banks, that's where the money is. Today, the money is in speculation. And SPACs and other UJAWs epitomize that speculation. And every speculative cycle has an outlandish example of gambling and speculation. Today it is right. GameStop, symbol GME, which so, traded at 110 this morning. Doug, what should our more traditional investor do that listen to us worldwide and across this nation? They're not in those things. They have money in their pension plan. Maybe they have an investment account as well. You can't tell me they should go to cash in all of them. I mean, what do they well, do given sure. the foolishness they observe? Few should short. Most should probably increase their cash reserves relative to historic parameters. I personally find a record low number of stocks that meet my standards for purchase today. And um, I would say for the second time in the last few years, it's my view that investors with a one or two year time frame mm -hmm. um, should sell many of their equities. Um, the most important thing in looking at the larger cap stocks away from the speculation, Tom, is that almost every traditional valuation metric is approaching all-time highs. I have actually 10 indicators, things like median enterprise value to sales, uh, Warren Buffett's favorite um, sentiment stat, uh, market cap to GDP, uh, enterprise value to free cash flow, median price to sales, median price to book, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all actually at the 100% historical percentile. So, Doug, I mean, you know, obviously the bull case, as you're well, well aware, is tremendous liquidity in the marketplace. Uh, the economy globally is going to set to open up in the second half of this year, presumably. Uh, stimulus around the globe, that's kind of the bull case. Are you saying that's fine, but the valuation's already pricing that all in? I think that we have to apply second level thinking, yes. Paul. Um, and I think I look at market looking at the upside reward versus the downside risk. And I see the upside reward being dwarfed by that. Um, to use Ben Graham's uh, phrase, mm -hmm. I see little margin of safety for most stocks. Getting back to what you just mentioned, um, we know that investor sentiment as measured by almost every survey has turned from fear to greed since March. Um, I believe that the consensus global economic and U.S. corporate profit growth forecasts are too optimistic. Um, I think we're underplaying 
that small U.S. businesses have been gutted and will leave a gap in consensus yeah. projections. And I so, yeah. um, and I also think that uh, a Democratic Senate may mean more stimulus short term, but it also means higher yeah. taxes on income and investment. Something something Lee Cooperman yeah. talks about. And finally, I think we have this this K recovery, this horrible schism between the haves and yeah. the have-nots, and we have continued social division. It's approaching yeah. dangerous levels, as we saw on January sixth. Yeah. Doug Kiss, here's the reality, and let's take it back to Henry Aaron. I looked at the time of a game in 1963 versus now. The players today are playing 34 more games a year over the 30 minutes longer game now. I mean, the 162 games, and they're stretching it out. I mean, they're to me, they're almost exhausted just within the grind of the entertainment of it today. Yeah, that's a problem. Same problem. I play a lot of golf. Um I've had lost hits allure because of the time consumption yeah. factor. Um, so there's, but you know, this. I do like baseball. I like the purity of baseball. I think you share this sentiment because yeah. that it's untimed. Yeah, absolutely. Doug Kess, thank you so much for being with us today on the markets and, of course, on the memory of Hank Aaron, Mr. Kess with Seabreeze uh, Investments. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> 